Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the show. show. So, Courtney, what are we talking about today? Well, today we are lucky enough to have Shawneen Pete here, who has just recently transitioned into the Indigenous Resurgence Coordinator role uh, in the Faculty of Education here. So welcome so much, and thank you for coming down the show, Shawneen. Thank you both. How are you? I'm doing great. Victoria is fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, the weather's not bad, hey? That's true. For the winter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we were talking a little bit prior to this um, podcast, kind of about like, what did we want to talk about today? And um, you had mentioned talking about and dealing with gaps in knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping you could kind of expand for our listeners about what that means. I've been an educator since um, 1989 in in Canada, and since um, 2001, I've been in a professorial roles as assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. And what I've noticed in the work that I was doing in faculties of ed is that you know, these bright students apply to our our faculties and they come in and and then I'd ask them the question on the first day of class, how did you learn about Aboriginal people in your home school and community? And they'd kind of look at me and I'd say, okay, go, you got 20 minutes to write for me and then I'll I'll take and um, write an assessment or write up a review of what this looks like. And a lot of my students said it just didn't happen. I mean, not in a formal way. They, they didn't learn about Aboriginal people in any kind of depth in their elementary and secondary schooling. Some of my students commented that they were just coming to learn about Aboriginal people in university. And in their home and community, they learned very negative things. So very stereotypical things, uh, very racialized things. And so as as potential teachers, there was a lot of fear for them about how were they going to take up and uh, meet the provincial obligations towards Aboriginal ed in their own roles. So they were a little bit afraid. Similarly, I had conversations with a number of faculty across Canada, and what I was finding is like our undergrad students, many faculty have been structurally denied the opportunity to learn about Aboriginal people in their own formal education. And so they too have a gap. So when our students are coming in and saying, I need to learn more about how to integrate Aboriginal content, and some faculty are saying, well, I need to do that too. I need to learn how to do that as well. Yeah, and it's hard if you don't if you don't have the knowledge, it leads to fear, right? Because you're not sure if you're going to do something right or you're going to do something wrong, you know, or what's what's going to be about that. And so, when you came into uh, the faculty of education, and you've been here um, for a short time now, and so that's part of, I guess, that the work that we have to do as a faculty is figure out how we can support faculty, students, and staff in being able to talk openly about. Um, indigenous history within Canada and how to indigenize your your curriculum and, and that great jazz. Absolutely. Uh, so there's the content of Aboriginal education and uh, learning the history and contemporary issues and the systems of oppression that impact on Aboriginal people. It elicits really common responses to people who are coming to learn that content. So um, anger, guilt, and shame are really normal. Uh, minimization, deflection are normal. And at the extreme, um, the violent rejection of that content um, are really, really common responses to coming to learn this content. And, and I'm not just t- speaking to undergrads. I'm speaking to anyone who 
who's new to the content. Um, when I'm working with faculty then, there is a bit of discomfort in the initial conversations. There's some, you know, where do I start? I don't want to be perceived as racist or make a, a racist comment or, or I just don't know how to do this. So there's this fear of, um, of, of looking bad, I mm-hmm. think, that folks are struggling with. And what I'd like to be able to do is help work alongside with them to explore topics of both historical and contemporary issues, and then look at pedagogy and ways of knowing and start to take those first tentative steps into changing how we teach and disrupting the the norms in higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> we were talking again uh, previously, and you had mentioned the other day that you've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yes, I and, have. And uh, you are feeling, uh, in some ways, tired and frustrated, and wish that you didn't have to continue to do it. Do you see any? Um, are you are you seeing any change? You know, as a result of the work that you've been doing for a long time. Like, I, I guess my question is, how do we how do we know when we've gotten to where we need to be? We'll have a look. It'll have a certain look and feel, but are there benchmarks along the way that you can say, well, yes, we've made progress? Absolutely. If you if we take a look at, at even at here at UVic, we see that First People's House, for example, provides extensive supports for students, but it also has the Indigenous um, Academic and Community Engagement Unit. And it's so wonderfully staffed that they're able to do a wide range of things on campus. When I look then out into the faculties, I see a range of people who've been hired into positions similar to mine to help build capacity with the faculties, um, as well as uh, sessional staff and and um, and faculty uh, instructors and, and research chairs. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, changes that way. But when I look in, and do a bit of a close-up examination uh, of where uh, Aboriginal content is happening, we see it happening uh really well in isolated places. So in the Indigenous Education Department, for example. And there are still locations on campus where there's um, a view that Indigenous ways of knowing, I don't know how to put them in at all, people will say, right? So in areas like science-based programming, um, in anything that has to do with uh, like kinesiology or, you know, those types of things, people are saying, I'm not really comfortable bringing Aboriginal content in it, the historical stuff or the more contemporary issues because I don't know how it fits in a science-based program. So we do see these unequal ways in which it's being taken up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think which speaks a little bit about, you know, how some of our programming and some of our um, more isolated units have to become a little bit more holistic in some ways. Um, I'm lucky enough to be in adult education in the Faculty of Education, so I have we have a lot of Indigenous content, which is fantastic. Um, and my research is on decolonizing um, pedagogy for non-Indigenous people, so um, I'm lucky enough to be immersed in this. But yeah, I had a girlfriend who is was in Kines and she did her master's program and loved like she, she soaked up everything that I had um, because that's not something that she she got. And so I'm I'm wondering too if there's a way it 
especially as a community person who works in community and works in grassroots, um, is it can't just also be isolated in universities, right? Like we have to figure out a way to make indigenous content and decolonization and reconciliation um, flow out from the university perspective into community. And it sounds like that's something that you've been doing um, with your work. Certainly when I was back in Saskatchewan, that was a big part of my work. And so since I've been here in Victoria since August, it, I've had to look around to see how things are being done. I've been really impressed. Um, two weeks ago in Duncan, there was a, a community gathering that took up an examination of reconciliation acts and really challenged participants in the community to start to write their narrative forward on things that they can do. So how can they promote the calls to action? What new information do they need to learn about? Uh, what speakers would they like to invite in for community capacity building? I was really excited with where they were going. I thought that was really fantastic. Uh, you grew up in Saskatchewan. That's right, yes. Uh, I did as well, although I moved here many years ago, you know, about halfway uh, th through my life, so I have kind of equal parts prairie and, and west coast. And I'm wondering if you see uh, significant differences uh, here on the west coast as, uh, as compared to Saskatchewan in terms of um, uh, how people interact, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. I think one of the things that I noticed right away is that I, I wasn't as hyper-visible as an Indigenous person walking down the streets of Victoria because there seems to be um, more diversity here. In Regina, it was just so ever-present. I mean, I couldn't go to the grocery store without feeling like I was being watched or going to Walmart and, and being followed or those kinds of things. And I have a doctorate, you know, like I'm yeah. a pretty respectable person. <laughs> but they don't see that. They don't see the degrees. They don't see your class. They don't see your experience when they see you on the street. And there's such a quick association um, that's uh, framed on racism in Saskatchewan. And it's it's a bit of a relief to be here. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly being here um, gives me a certain level of anonymity. But I also think there's something very different about the racial constructions in Victoria um, that are, are quite different. I haven't quite figured out what they are yet, but very different from Regina and Saskatchewan and PA and North Battleford. Yeah. And I have to qualify my remarks with that. You know, I'm, I'm remembering a past that was 30 years ago, mm -hmm. but when I compare the West coast to Saskatchewan, there's, um, I would say the Saskatchewan that I grew up in, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, there was almost a, uh, a kind of virtual apartheid in, in place where there was, virtually no interaction between Indigenous and non-Indigenous in, in Regina, where, where I was. Uh, whereas on the West Coast here, there's much more uh, sense of intact communities meeting, communities meeting communities, um, projects that cross boundaries and cross communities. And it's, uh, there's just a, a quite a different feel to it in Victoria. Definitely. I grew up in a, in a, in an interesting way as an Indigenous person in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s. My parents were middle class, and both of them were university educated. My mother had two degrees. My dad uh, was 
part of the first cohort of the Native Law Program at the U of S. So we grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. And both my parents, for the entire period when I was growing up, both of them had jobs. My dad was in the RCMP. Uh, he worked as Both of them worked as researchers. My mom helped child, uh, start the First Nations Child um, Family Services programs that operated in First Nations communities. And my dad helped with the recruitment and retention of Indigenous people in, um, in law, in the... RCMP and in the police services. So he did that Canada-wide. So it's it's not like I came from a place of poverty. It's not like I grew up on a reserve. I grew up with some privileges as well, which give you a really interesting insight to social inequality when you're a middle-class Indian growing up in Saskatoon. So it was a little bit different kind of lived experience. I think it did position me really well to stand back and observe whiteness and white racial constructions around me and the way that class plays out in those discussions. Um, we might have been able to afford, you know, the middle class home and the two cars and the vacations and all those things as a, as a child uh, when I was growing up with my family. And at the same time, we were still perceived as less than in our middle class communities. Um, so that it, was a, it was a weird kind of growing up experience too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for, yeah. One that really highlights that disparity, hey, in some ways about, okay, well, if we're all in the same community and we're all coming from the same place, but I'm still viewed as less than, what's going on there, mm-hmm. right? I think you learn that lesson of the limits of meritocracy really early on, even if you don't know the words, mm-hmm. right? You can see, oh, I can have all of this class privilege, but the expectation is I won't have, be a very successful school uh, student, right? Right. Um, and so moving forward, as, as you kind of settle into this role here and settle into Victoria and settle into the faculty, what are some of your hopes that you have? Oh, a couple of things. Um, I have, I'm using a variety of different approaches to try and work with faculty and instructors here in the Faculty of Education. So I have one session tomorrow that's just an invitation to come and talk about those first steps at bringing Aboriginal content in or bringing in Indigenous resource people into your teaching practice and just giving people a space to have that conversation. What does that look like for you? Because it's really not about me, right? It's about them. Um, and what, how are they processing that? How are their students processing these interventions or these changes? Uh, after the holidays, I'll be taking up um, a book talk. We're going to be starting with Adam Godry's work on um, de- uh, sorry, indigenization as inclusion, reconciliation, and decolonization. I think it'll be a really good entry point into looking at the levels or layers of indigenizing that can happen. And then I'll be also utilizing a tool that was created here uh, amongst a partnership of uh, colleges and uh, universities in BC, and it's called Pulling Together. And it's around indigenizing academic programs in all of those locations. So I'll be rolling it out with faculty and instructional staff here um, in January. So we'll do like one session a week kind of thing. There'll be some readings attached to it. There'll be a presentation and discussion that'll happen. And that'll hopefully build up the capacity of people to engage in these conversations, but to reform their their, uh, curriculum practices as well. Neat. Yeah, I hope that every graduate of the Faculty of Education will leave with more understanding 
and more engagement with the practice of indigenizing their own teaching practice than when they came in. And that through the process of learning across the curriculum areas, that they will ask new questions and take on some of the personal inquiry that helps to fill the gaps um, in their own understandings. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was... I always I always try to think about the re, the listeners who are listening to this and going like, okay, well, but how do I do that? You know what I mean? And how do I figure that stuff out? And, um, you know, there's a lot of information that's happening about decolonization and reconciliation and all that great stuff. And it sounds, and I'm not a teacher, I'm an adult educator, so I don't do K to 12 stuff. Um, but is there, is there, do you find that there is enough material for people and access to material for people as, as, K to 12 educators? Absolutely. Uh, I think that at no time in history has there been more opportunities to learn, to reach out and to pick up the books, the poetry, to attend the performances by Indigenous artists, to listen to the music in such a variety of forms, uh, to meet with uh, traditional knowledge keepers, to uh, listen to Indigenous scholars, uh, public knowledge, um, pu public academics or public intellectuals. There, there is so much access to information right now in a wide variety of forms, not just the academic, mm -hmm. um, that there's no excuse not to learn. Yeah. Um, there was a free workshop this weekend here in the faculty on um, on bringing Aboriginal content into, like to recenter it into your curriculum practices. You know, those things are happening all the time. There was a reconciliation forum last week. There's lots of things happening. Yeah. Um, and so there's no excuse not to take those first steps into addressing some area of need. Yeah. Getting, you just got to get curious. Absolutely. And go out there. Absolutely. Yeah. What what do you think accounts for this? Um, as you said, there's never been a better time. Absolutely, the word resurgence is I think is part of your title. Your, yes, <clears throat> there there is a a, a change, a, a sea change in in, uh, in in attitude and information and access that's happened. I would again within the last decade. I would say, I, any idea what's the reason behind that? I mean, why why has that happened? Is it technology and social media? Is it that people have finally woken up uh, what what's what's happening oh my goodness you know i i just think the timing is just so perfect there's so much encouragement to tell our stories in such a wide variety of ways as indigenous peoples and we're taking um taking on that challenge in with uh with gusto mm -hmm. um in Regina, my friends and I started two television programs um, on community uh, television. One of them was called The Four, and it was an Indigenous women's lifestyle program. And the other program was ResX TV, and it rolled out of a ResX magazine that we had been publishing. So I was community co-producer in both of those programs, partly because I always wanted to be the Indian Oprah. <laughs> yes <laughs> right yes <laughs> and I thought that would just be fun right and it was kind of on the side of my faculty work and you know all the stuff that I was doing on campus but it was the place where we could have those innovative conversations where we could recenter indigenous voices in a, in a really positive way I loved the four we took on all the topics that the Indian women wanted to talk about right like we didn't leave much um, uncovered <laughs> and then with 
with the uh, ResEx, we were talking about a lot of contemporary issues and the remaking of Indigenous identities. We spoke about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, issues. I mean, we really, there was a lot of topics that we wanted to explore and it gave us a great opportunity to do that. So as part of those teams, especially with ResEx, our cast were 20s, in their 20s, and we were a variety of different people. But And they were doing innovative things themselves. They were artists and they were songwriters. And um, we were exploring Indigenous voice in a whole wide range of ways, mm -hmm. right? And I see that happening um, in BC as well in lots of different ways. It's um, th There's no limit to the ways in which we could be communicating right now and, and ways in which we could be telling our stories. I think that's, we're just going to ride that up, out. It's just very exciting. Mm -hmm. And exciting, I think, for all, you know, for all Canadians too on the other side, like as a non-Indigenous person, I, I love that I'm being able to get all of this information that largely I think, you know, with the advent of social media and technology and the internet and stuff like that, that I learn about things like A Tribe Called Red and Leanne Simpson. And I grew up listening to Buffy St. Marie and, you know, being able to start to have that as part of my world and not just being fed um, certain myths and or racist ideologies, um, you know, from my great uncle Bob. I don't have a great uncle Bob, but the gist of that um, and what have you, being able to hear it from Indigenous people in Indigenous communities. We sat down uh, last month and watched First Contact. That was a show that was brought up by APTN, um, which is online for free and is lovely as a bit of an introduction for people who don't know much about an Indigenous communities in Canada. So there's, I think there's something to be said about having the avenue to do it and then indigenous communities and collectives and individuals are are just grabbing that and running with it and it's amazing to see because now we're not having something filtered through certain gazes we're able to actually see it and hear it and listen to it and read it um, from indigenous communities and it's super important it, we really are sharing our gifts mm-hmm we're sharing our gifts of performance and writing and, um, you know, our, all of our creativities in so many different ways. And I think for, um, for Canadians, the challenge will be to accept the gift yeah. and to know that it'll, um, it'll disrupt a little bit the taken-for-granted ideas about what it means to be Canadian. You know, I think we've inherited this idea that we're multicultural and we're welcoming and we're accepting but I think we don't have to look far in our history to see all the ways in which we were not, yeah. that we have not been um, welcoming to lots of different people um, over different periods of time. And currently, who we are not really welcoming into our communities, our, our ongoing struggle with racism and sexism and homophobia and all of those things continue to play out for us. Um, and I think what Indigenous people are saying, we're giving our gifts away. We're offering you the gift of learning and we're inviting. Um, and now it's on your part, right, as Canadians to make that decision, whether you want to fully participate with us. Uh, I guess and you spoke earlier about my frustration and, and the rate of change and how long it takes to for things to move. And I think... Uh, at one point, I remember saying that uh, reconciliation is impossible until Canadians begin to do the work of, uh, you know, accepting the gift mm -hmm. um, and practicing yeah, nice the work. <clears throat> yeah, and and that comes, you know, from a person who's 
um, been working on this personally um, and uh, academically for a while, um, now in terms of non-Indigenous decolonization, um, it is these these stories and these voices and these perspectives are gifts. And the gift of that far outweighs any discomfort that I've ever felt. Um, and, you know, I think that if we're, you know, we can still be a great country, right? It doesn't mean that we're not going to be a great country. It just means that we have to be different. And different can be scary, but that's not a bad thing if we if we look at it that way, right? We really need to understand that we do have gifts um, by people in this country, and we need to start to honor those in, in real and tangible ways. Exactly. And I think that's starting to happen now more than I would argue that it ever has. Um, but I, I the way that you say it is so eloquent and beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And lots of, uh, I, I invite uh, Canadians to sit with one another as they practice um, accepting the gift and processing what it creates within them, the disruption that it's creating, to speak openly about how it channels or challenges our um, national myths and how they have to participate in a new type of relationship with Indigenous people and what that might look like. Because it can't just be um, of the mind. It actually has to be of self. Um, and, um, it can't just be a thought process or a content change, right? Mm -hmm. It has to actually be in our interactions. Um, I worked very closely with a colleague um, named Mike Capello. And what I appreciate about Mike is that we decided we would walk this path to reconciliation together. And so at times I was a teacher and at times he was a teacher and we would talk quite candidly about how our different positionalities, he as a white male, me as an Indigenous woman, um, how our different ideas about Canada and, and our stories and our vision for reconciliation was something we had to walk openly. And so we would model through discussion in community groups, at churches and youth groups and wherever, everywhere, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just to model what that conversation could look like. Uh, and I think that was helpful. Yeah. I'm thinking as you're talking about, um, because I had asked earlier, what's changed or why why now in terms of this moment? And uh, and I don't know if it has any uh, applicability, but the, I, I think from an educational perspective, uh, psychologists, educational psychologists talk about this notion of readiness in children, that when they're at a certain stage in their development, then they're ready to move to that next and that next educational challenge, whether it's learning to read or to do math or so on. And, and I'm wondering if that has any applicability at a, at a level for countries. I mean, we're, we're a young country. We, we've been uh, 150 years in its current version. Um, and as we were talking before we started recording, this whole process of uh, colonization and empire and, and imperialism and the subjugated and the vanquished, has, it's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And, and whether there comes a point where these nation states are ready to, for everyone to, to kind of get along and, and, and acknowledge and, and be respectful as opposed to points of tension and conflict like we've had in this country for the last 120 or 30, 40, 50 years. It's, I find it really fascinating that when the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People 
came out and was announced in those things, the people who didn't sign on to it were the Canadian government, the United mm-hmm. States, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, the places where uh, um, a call for decolonization is mm-hmm. so evident and yet is so denied. And it wasn't all that long ago when our former prime minister said that colonization doesn't exist in Canada. Yeah. And so we we are, I agree with you, I think we're pretty fresh in this and we, we are carrying a fair amount of um, denial around our... Or our, immaturity. Absolutely. Um, and around the whole process of colonization and its lasting impacts. Um, uh, it's of an inequality and dependency um, that have been uh, heaped upon Indigenous people. Yeah, and the idea... It's hard because I believe that our prime minister at that point, 2008, meant it. Right? And that's and that's part of the issue, right? Is that um, this is and that's part of what this kind of colonialism is in being in settler societies is the theoretical term um, where it's the erasure of indigenous connections with land and with history and with being there before someone else was, right? Um, and so I think. Part of it is I don't actually think that Canadians, by and large, are wanting that, right? I don't think that that Canadians in general are are, are people who are like, yes, I want my stuff, and you're going to pay for it, and you know, I I don't think that they're ill intended. I don't think so. I think that they're ignorant, right? A lot of people are, don't know about this, and that's the way that this system was set up, right? And so now we have this ability to start to learn about okay, so why do I have these privileges? And this idea that we came into this land, you know, and it was free and we took it is a complete myth. Um, and in fact, atrocities were done and millions and millions of people were killed to take this land. And, you know, these things people don't want to hear. But the reality of it is, is that we're not we're not responsible for what happened, but we are accountable to change the systems that are continuing it. And I think that that's, that's the struggle that a lot of us have. But um, when we're talking about being ready, I think we are ready to start to move towards a different way of doing things. Um, but I think that in order to do that, and Arthur Manuel says that, we were talking about the Reconciliation Manifesto, which has blown my mind. Um, you know, in order to do that, we have to learn the truth. And then the truth is a pathway to reconciliation. And without that truth sharing and without that truth telling, we can't get to reconciliation. So I think that's kind of maybe for me anyways, looking at it from that perspective, that's where we're at, where we're starting to actually hear truth from voices of people who've largely been silenced prior to this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from our perspectives, from mainstream Canada's perspectives, right? And so we're starting to learn more about that. And then through that rather uncomfortable um, feeling for a lot of Canadians, we'll be able to move forward in a way that's, you know, could make us an amazing example of what we could be as a country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to walk together through these uncomfortable truths mm-hmm. and and sit down with one another and talk them through and talk them over because they are, um, the more marginalized you are in society, the more you see the oppression, right? Mm-hmm. And the more uh, closer you are to the norms in society, the, the, it seems like it's optional to see. Yeah. And so we have to work through that um, in order to get to the, to pass, you know, the acceptance of the truth. Okay, we've agreed on the truth, here it is. Um, and then move towards the actions that are going to continue to move the system and change it a little bit. Um, we are, you know, 
in we are in very unsettled times in Canada. We are looking at an indigenous framework that is some many people perceive as being imposed upon us, and we hear that indigenous people have. Uh, I do, you know, there's a duty to consult on indigenous with indigenous communities around all matters that uh, impact on us, and at, at the same time, there's this tension about process. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we implemented UNDRIP, uh, we would be well on our way to moving past the tensions. Um, but we have to get through this tension first. Right? Yeah. Uh, but how can we ease that? That's uh, I think that's our continual work. Well, lots to be done. Mm-hmm. Many more hours and hours of conversation um, could unfold from this. So this is a, a good beginning. Fantastic. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah. And thank you both. Thanks for coming. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Shawneen Pete. I'm Ted Regan. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>